three-quarters of deliberately lit fires in New Zealand are caused by young people, with official figures showing that of all serious offences committed by children and adolescents, arson is the most common. Some of the behaviour is put down to a child's natural curiosity about fire, or simply being mischievous. But in this Radio New Zealand Insight programme, Sue Ingram looks at emerging research suggesting that arson attacks by young people can indicate a link to other, more serious offending. We went into the building searching for graffiti and had fireworks and started playing with them. At derelict factory, fireworks bought for that night's Guy Fawkes celebration, a couple of mates and nothing better to do. Connor, 14 at the time, didn't realise he was about to burn down a building. Just looking around and we had the fireworks. That'd be fun of them looking around, so we started playing with them. Had a few little ones that spin on the ground. And then there was no sign of any fire when you left? No, no sign at all. And then got home, seen the place on fire and rung up and freaked out. Toxic black smoke blanketed the suburbs yesterday as fire tore through a disused factory packed with old refrigeration insulation. The fire caused thousands of dollars worth of damage, destruction caused by a prank that went wrong. Didn't intend on doing it. Not that stupid. Fire service figures suggest that 75% of all deliberately lit fires are started by young people under the age of 21, 57% by those under 17. Dr Ian Lambie, a senior lecturer in clinical and forensic psychology at the University of Auckland, who carries out consultation work with the fire service, says many young people are attracted by fire. Young children, probably under the age of, say, eight, light fires for experimentation, boredom, fascination, curiosity. When we go up the age range a bit, for kids potentially up from the age of 10, 12, there we're looking at different reasons. Um, Potentially it's boredom. Also acting with peers, they can do it for thrill, um, basically blatant vandalism. Quantifying the number of arson attacks is difficult because of the way incidents are recorded. The fire service attended 25,000 fires in total in 2008, of which 8.6% were suspicious. But another 35% were unlawful or were deliberate with doubtful intent. The police say they investigate about 1,000 suspicious fires a year. Greg Clark, who's a police youth services supervisor, says many of those are small small bushfires or small scrub fires, wheelie bins being set alight, rubbish bins being set alight around schools. And typically it's by youth that are bored or experimenting or just hanging out in groups and decide to pull a packet of matches out of their pockets and light a fire. Young pyromaniacs, those who light fires because they get a thrill from that and the response from the emergency services are rare. Nonetheless, Ian Miller, a former manager of police psychological services and a consultant to the fire service, says even small fires can create quite an effect. Often the fires are minimal, in rubbish skips, packing cases against buildings, a bit of dried herbage, fern or gorse or whatever, and it of course has a great effect because it gets fire service here in a hurry and there's people milling around and it can be quite exciting. And a fire, no matter why it started, can cause significant loss. For a lot of crime, you can sometimes recover the goods or the goods that go out in the market. With fire, it is just so devastating. Peter Wilding is the Manager of Fire Investigation and Arson Reduction with the New Zealand Fire Service.
Some of those things simply can't be replaced and people lose personal effects and things that are being handed down. Communities lose buildings that are fundamentally important to their heritage and those things are just demolished in fire. And You can rebuild the building but it really doesn't replace that social linkage. In terms of physical destruction, how much is arson costing the community? Just on the replacement cost, we're losing around $30 million a year. What we are very keenly aware is that we're not including business interruptions or loss of business, we're not including stock and of course all the social cost implications. What's very concerning is as we talk to the insurers who do pick up more of the real cost, that escalates between 7 and 10 times that amount, so we could be losing something like $200 million a year. Even small fires can cause considerable damage. Once a fire is lit, there's really nothing the fire lighter can do to really stop it growing and escalating into large fires. And very good examples of that are the school fires we see around, often not malicious fires, but just lit initially because of a lack of understanding of consequence. The fire service gets called to around 150 fires at schools each year. One of the most recent happened at this primary school in Wainui Amata in Lower Hutt, north of Wellington, where a classroom and outside decking was destroyed by a fire thought to have been deliberately lit. It happened during the summer break, and that's common. Suspicious fires happen most often when buildings are empty, and for schools, that makes them easy targets during holidays. Anne Jackson from the Ministry of Education says although the number of school fires is stable, it is something of concern for the Ministry and school boards of trustees. The direct cost to the Ministry of Education and to school boards of trustees has been in the order of around five million a year. Uh, in addition to that, there's really significant costs for uh, an event that's as uh, sort of traumatic and, and disruptive as arson in schools. Um, for example, costs to staff time teacher resources and to student work and of course the cost to the school community in responding to the arson and some of those are significant costs and of course they're unrecorded. Peter Wilding from the fire service would like better collaboration with the Ministry of Education so that schools get improved guidance about how they can minimise fire risk. This includes securing rubbish bins away, better lighting and improved security. According to research compiled by Ian Miller, schools are the most frequent targets of arson attacks after homes and outbuildings. There's a body of evidence that defenders see schools as a, a manifestation of social values and so will strike right back, I'll show you that I can do something, so take that. Sometimes it's just because it's a place they're familiar with. They know their way around, they know where to get in, they know where vulnerabilities in the buildings are. Ian Miller's analysis of fire service data highlights certain patterns of when fires occur. He cautions that his figures are based on how firefighters code incidents and so have a certain wobble factor. But he says studying the timing of fires can provide important information for the police. If you look at the unlawful fires, you'll find that they occur from about 4 o'clock in the afternoon and they peter out about 11 o'clock at night. Across that period of between 4 and 11 o'clock in the evening, the probability of a fire of that nature becomes markedly higher than the baseline because the kids, young people, they're out of work, they're out of school, they're out of parental control. It's the early hours of the evening, they're out on the streets doing all sorts of things that young people do. But by 11 o'clock, they're home abed. Go ahead. 
It's a Friday evening and I'm on board a fire engine along with four firefighters from the central Wellington fire station. Many of their call-outs turn out to be false alarms. This one is to a house where there are reports of smoke in the kitchen. It's minor, but then we're redirected to something that could be a lot more serious. Wellington 217, classroom fire at Mansford Intermediate. Often fires have all the hallmarks of being lit by a young person, and the odds are it'll be by a boy. That's because despite the girls can do anything trend, most firelighters remain male. Ian Lambie from Auckland University. 80% typically of all fires will be set by males. It's a part of sort of their externalising antisocial behaviour, whereas girls, females tend to internalise sort of psychological problems. For 14-year-old Connor, boredom, hanging out with mates and a lack of thought about possible consequences all added up to a major fire. But two years later and the teenager still finds fire attractive. Oh, it just looks cool. I love fireworks. They look amazing. I just... Draws my eye. Psychologists say that many children seem to have a fascination with fire, and this is one reason why the fire service targets young primary school students for its flagship programme, Firewise. What's the message? Off we go. Get out, get on, get out fast. Okay, what's the get down for? Get down and get low. Put a smoke to not get into your face. At Taita Primary School in Lower Hutt, Five and six-year-olds answer questions about what they've learnt about fire safety. But why do we have to get out fast, Ivor Penny? Because you you'll get fire inside you. Yep, and not just the flames. What else is dangerous? The smoke. The smoke. Can we breathe smoke? No. No, we can't breathe smoke. Okay. The program has been running for around 20 years and is aimed at every year one and two student in the country. Peter Wilding from the Fire Service believes it has influenced a generation. The knowledge of fire-safe behaviour is certainly improving in New Zealand communities, so it's certainly worth investing in that. But you will always find instances where individual children will adopt an unhealthy attitude towards fire. Peter Wilding says although small fires can be considered minor, it's important to address inappropriate fire lighting. If it's not addressed, then that behaviour invariably does grow. So if they start with small fires and then that's not quite as exciting or they get more comfortable with that, so they'll move on to something else. To tackle young people who are caught lighting fires, the Fire Service runs an education scheme called the Fire Awareness and Intervention Programme. It is largely delivered by volunteers, dubbed practitioners, who are frontline firefighters, one of whom is senior firefighter Rachel Lind, who works in the Taranaki region. So we have this profile sheet where we ask a lot of questions and the questions last year 754 young people were referred to the program it consists of an initial session of about an hour or so some homework and at least one follow-up session several weeks later the focus is to discover motivation and to educate about consequence some of it may just be simply sitting down and saying for a for a teenager saying hey you've got a choice here you're at the 
pinnacle where your life can take off good or bad and sometimes all they need to do is actually realize that because peer pressure and you know boredom and sort of excitement out there of of others doing stuff that's maybe not right and they just go along with it whereas if you actually you know feed them some information to say you can achieve whatever you like in your life but you have to make the right decisions and some of these decisions you've made so far aren't right but you've got the opportunity now to change and it's all up to you. How do they get referred to the programme? It uh, comes from a variety of cases. It can go just plainly by the public, can say, well, look, we've seen young people like fires, we need names and numbers, obviously. The fire service, so if we attend emergency calls and we catch them in the act. Uh, the police, we get a lot of referrals from the police, SIFs, youth aid, schools, come in a lot of time from schools and families. i got the sense that they're trying to help me, make me aware of how bad how bad the situation was. Connor and his family have experienced the programme firsthand. They were shown various videos, including one about a fire in 1985, which broke out at the Bradford Football Stadium in England. The whole stand is going up in flames, and that person there looks to be burning. And the timbers are coming down onto the ground, and this is horrific. 56 people died after the fire engulfed a stand in around three minutes. It's terrifying to watch. Connor's mum says it made a significant impact. All the videos that they showed were very important, like the scarring ones were oh, eye-opening in, in themselves. But the Bradford fire video, I think, was something that everybody should see. All these people died because nobody had reacted and nobody had realised and it's so easy to sit there and watch something going on in the background, going, ah, ha, ha, you know, that's, it's not going to hurt me. But it is, and it could. And how such a small little thing can turn into such a huge, ugly thing in seconds. Rachel Lynn says she uses various educational material pitched at the appropriate age during the interventions. She points out that there will often be other issues in the youngster's life alongside the fire setting. There'll be absenteeism in the family, parent or caregiver. Other siblings around them perhaps have taken a bad path and there will be the peer situation. So whether it be that they're being bullied or whether they're in a group situation now, you get a little group of boys together and you've got a gang. The firefighter says as well as getting young people to understand the potential consequence of lighting a fire, educating parents not to leave children unattended is also important. In many cases, this is straightforward, but tough situations do crop up. There's been a variety of cases where I've been into families where very dysfunctional, but perhaps not because of the way they live, but just because the school of hard knocks, you know, life's dealt them blows. You know, dad's passed away, mum's got no money and unable to care for her children. She's got other siblings that are um, unwell or indeed in jail and just struggling to actually survive, really. And that's very tough because while we can change their beliefs and the way that they do things, you can't change the world. Peter Wilding, who manages the intervention programme, says in such situations the practitioners will refer families to other agencies. Currently we've got access to some of the other government support services and some non-government family support services as well. So we can try and encourage the family to become involved in that. Um, I've talked to some practitioners who say they'll be working at a table with a child trying to work through a workbook while the brothers and sisters are tearing wallpaper off the walls and swinging from the curtains and clearly 
there's a whole issue in there around family. It's not the actual fire lighting is only part of the problem. In fact, it's really just a symptom, isn't it? So we've got material we can leave with them. We've got groups like Parents Inc. And then you go right through to the other end where occasionally our people come across instances of very serious neglect. And then we've got processes there where we can get in touch with other agencies who can help. What evidence is there that the Fire Wise programme delivered to primary school children and the Fire Awareness and Intervention programme work? In the two decades they've been running, has there been a decline in the percentage of youngsters lighting fires? Since 1980, I was just looking at these statistics for deliberately lit fires, the incidence of, of children being involved has remained fairly consistent across that time. This is best guess, but I imagine if we withdrew those programmes, you'd probably see those statistics increase. So you're just taking a guess that the programmes work? Well, from the Fire Awareness Programme, we do know that it's worked for a couple of reasons. We always do a follow-up visit three months later, and we find out, and this is anecdotal, but we do ask the families, has there been any additional fire lighting? And they will say no. So we believe that there's a decrease in recidivism. And then we've just had a study done by Auckland University who has studied 200 children uh, randomly selected 10 years ago when they went through the programme. And then they followed them through, and they went to police records to see if these children featured again in police records in terms of fire lighting. And they have confirmed that 98% of those who went through our program were not seen by police again. That Auckland University research was conducted by Ian Lambie and released in November last year. Dr Lambie found only four of the 200 people he studied who had participated in the intervention scheme had gone on to further fire setting, a recidivism rate of just 2%. Why it actually has an impact, it's, it's potentially hard to know, but I think one of the key take-home messages is that fire is obviously dangerous, that you know the consequences can be quite significant, and I think just educating young people and their families about actually how fast it can take hold. And I think until people watch videos and until they see the actual reality of what can actually happen if a fire gets out of control, I just don't think people actually understand Connor's mum says she was very impressed with the way the fire service dealt with her son's offence and he received quite different treatment from the police. The fire service was immediately helpful and caring and they took on a caring, nurturing side of things to try and positively show Connor what had happened and what the situation was. Whereas the police service marched in didn't give him opportunity to think or to understand what was going on. And so it was a very negative situation. That being in that negative situation, you don't learn from your mistakes. You're just immediately pushed down and made to feel like you are nothing. Whereas the fire service pushed you up and made you feel like you had potential and you had done some a mistake but you could learn from it and grow from it, whereas the the police side of things made Connor feel like he was nothing and could go nowhere. The police caught up with Connor at school. I was in a maths exam and the headmaster called me down to the office and then the police put me in handcuffs from there, took me down to the police station and interviewed me there and rung up mum and got her to come in. It was weird being in handcuffs, because they do them up so tight it hurts. Because they do it behind your back, you're sitting on your hands in the cop car, so that hurts as well. 
He was charged and his case was dealt with by the family court. Court was pretty scary because there's all the dodgy guys in there. None of them, like, I was the best dressed person in there. Every, everyone was in like, jeans and a t-shirt and I was in my school uniform so that the judge could realise how young I was. And then during the holidays, just in a suit. And so that really had an impact, seeing seeing what it was really like? Yeah, it did, because I had to go 20-odd times. <laughs> Dragged out over a year. He and his mum say they felt resentful towards the police when, as part of curfew conditions, officers would often check that he was at home at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. At the same time, the teenager says the actions of the police have taught him a lesson. The National Manager for Police Youth Services, Bill Harrison, says most of the time youth service officers would go to a youngster's home rather than school and the use of handcuffs could rightly be interpreted as heavy-handed. But he says there is an element of the police wanting to teach young people a lesson. Probably 8 out of 10 young offenders don't come back. So how we deal with them is effective in preventing them from re-offending. It probably does come across as heavy-handed in a way because we are wearing the uniform, we are representing the victim and, and we are making sure that the government spend on us is effective in preventing re-offending. Arson is a serious offence and it needs to be treated that way. Bill Harrison says a recently introduced risk screening tool applied to young offenders is set to change things. That's a significant shift for the sector where we used to deal with an offence and the offence carried a particular tariff and it was community service or writing letters of apology. That was how we dealt with the offence. We still hold them to account and we will still ensure that they understand that they've crossed the line and that what they've done is wrong. But we're also looking from a more holistic perspective that says let's deal with the risk factors and try to prevent further offending. Connor, now 16, says the fire intervention programme taught him not to be stupid with fire and to think things through. The scheme costs the fire service around $300,000 a year to deliver. Out of eight regions, only two have a full-time practitioner. All the others rely solely on frontline firefighters who volunteer. Practitioner Rachel Lind believes with improved resourcing, the numbers of young people referred to the programme would increase by at least a third to more than 1,000. Ian Lambie from Auckland University believes there's a significant group of children and adolescents who aren't coming to the notice of the fire service. We were doing a previous study some years ago. We were looking for a, a control group of kids who had behaviour problems and didn't set fire. So we went to this programme working with kids with severe conduct problems and trying to actually find kids who were in that category that did have delinquent behaviours but hadn't actually set fires was quite difficult. And what we found is that actually a number of those kids had set significant fires, house fires, factory fires, and had never actually come to the attention of youth justice, um, the police, nor the fire service for their fire setting. Why do you think that is? It's a behaviour that is easily concealed. You, know, you can run off, take away from it quite easily before actually anyone's alerted to it that actually is going on. Statistics show that catching arsonists is difficult. Last year there was only a 12% resolution rate. Psychologists say that in many cases young people grow out of firelighting, a trend that will feed into the apparent success of the fire service intervention programme. Fire expert Ian Miller says as teenagers get older, they find other things to gratify their interests and motivations. As they get older and they're 15 or 16, they're moving into other kinds of areas of social concern. 
They may be experimenting with sniffing solvents. They may be, for the first time, getting reasonably reliable access to alcohol or other drugs, cannabis or pills. Their interests move on to other kinds of activities of younger people. Those that are of a, a destructive and criminal nature are likely then to be moving into areas of burglary and crime. He says fire setting can have many more consequences than offences such as shoplifting or burglary. That may be one reason why Ian Lambie's research found that arson recidivism was low, but that more than half of those who had completed the fire intervention programme went on to commit other offences. 40% had committed moderate crimes, including burglary or speeding, while 15% had committed severe crimes, such as robbery and violent offending. Fire setting is part of a whole range of other antisocial behaviour for some of them, not all of them by all means. And it's basically just sort of like vandalism, burglary, sexual crimes, property crimes, violent crimes. And it's potentially maybe one of the first identifying or one of the key identifying factors when a young person is um, growing up that they set a fire and it's a key marker that they may go on to other antisocial behaviour. And a seven-year-old who sets fires, who shows fascination, who may you know, be told off for one fire, yet goes back and lights another fire, who is having difficulty at school, who may be behaviourally challenging to his parents. Um, and the, those are key things that you know, really the, the interventions need to happen when the young person is early, not just from the fire service, but also particularly from education and health. The ramifications of the research are still being digested by the police. Peter Wilding from the Fire Service. You've got your group of people that come through our programs who come from good families who are caring about their children who recognise poor behaviour. But we also do see a lot of children come through our program who come from pretty sad backgrounds, pretty dysfunctional families or broken families, solo parents where the mum or the dad has just got more than they can cope with. And that's pretty tragic, and it probably is not too much of a leap from there to know that the makeup of our prison populations um, are largely represented from that group. So it's really not a surprise um, that they go on to other type of behaviour which then becomes known to the police. Ian Lambie believes it's key that his research leads to a new way of assessing young people on the fire intervention programme for their risk of future offending. One of the things we will certainly be working with well, I'd hope we're working with the Fire Service Commission in the future, is actually developing a risk assessment measure. So when young people and their families come to the Fire Service Intervention Programme, that basically we can assess the likelihood of them going into which group later on. So what you do is you actually, not just identifying risk, but you actually are able to identify their needs for what tier of intervention you provide. The vast majority of the kids who come to the programme, one or two sessions are going to be fine. There are other individuals who come from multi-problem families where there's multiple abuse, the parents are neglectful, um, the kids fascinated in fires and they just keep going back to set fires whereby they require far more intensive and longer term intervention from the fire service, child youth and family, mental health and obviously education as well. Does that mean firefighters whose mission it is to reduce the incidence and consequence of fire are being asked to act more like social workers? Peter Wilding believes it would be a mistake for the fire service to adopt a silo mentality. The bigger issues are here, if we don't treat the family dysfunction, then there's still a tremendous cost to the community. Um, we've heard an awful lot about whole the government approach, but you just can't get away from the fact that we need to work collaboratively. And it's beyond government as well. We need to work as, as well as we can with the other support services. 
it sounds a great concept and we are doing work around that, but it's not always that easy when you, you may have parents who are affected by alcohol or drugs and to try and reach those people and, and link them to help is not an easy task. The police say arson is a very small part of their job, but the new research suggests more attention should be paid to those children and adolescents who do deliberately light fires. That Radio New Zealand Insight programme was written and presented by Sue Ingram.